Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Every day, hundreds of thousands of us are building a future we can all be proud of. For over 36 years, the growth CBUS My Super Investment option has returned an average of 8.98% per annum for its members, while investing in projects that not only create jobs, but a better future. CBUS, for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, go to cbussuper.com.au for a PDS. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you this is the final word, story time. Our weekly do-si-do through the history of our game and the numbers that so neatly underpin it. I'm Adam Collins and with me down the Zoom screen again is Jeff Lemon. It's a beautiful day in London. How's freedom though? It's lovely as it is here. We've got 10 days of self-isolation. We're on day four and it feels like we're in a time machine back to where we were, well, I guess roughly this time last year. But you, you were in the park today, weren't you? Mm, I was outside. I was at a birthday in the park, ran around, threw a frisbee, patted a dog, ate a pavlova, had a good time. <laughs> Sorry about that, everybody. I met a bunch of people today and, and I, you know, as sometimes happens, you get asked what you do with your time. And for the first time in my life, my answer was, I make a cricket podcast because I was like, we've got to be honest at this point. That is, that is what I do. Um, yeah. And, and this person's like, what does that entail? And I was like, oh, it, it entails knowing what the Indian cricket team was doing in 1956. Like, you know, it is the most niche shit that you can possibly imagine. Well, yeah, we do have an answer about late colonial in- Indian cricket today, don't we? So mm-hmm. that's all, all related. Yeah. We'll get there in a moment. This is the first time we've recorded a proper conversation since I've been... Uh, back in England. We did one in the flat in Hawthorne on Monday, I suppose, that's six days ago now. And a couple of those um, daily episodes in that whirlwind of a test match at Ahmedabad. Mm. Um, but they're not quite the same as looking down the screen and having a, a longer chat, a longer go at it, where we can have any number of different diversions along the way, including the fact that behind me here I have a, a couple of new Bangladesh tops, thanks to Brian Withington from the OBO, one of our loyal correspondents on there. He, he actually sent this to me initially during the 2019 World Cup. The last game that Bangladesh played was against Pakistan at Lords when Shaheen Afridi took his six for and I was just spaffing about how brilliant the, the Bangladesh alternate strip looked with the red mm-hmm. anyway he found me a Bangladesh top and sent it to the Guardian and it duly got lost in the mail well probably got lost in the mail sorting room there at the Guardian so not only did he send me one for me he also sent one to Winnie an extra small for her to grow into when she's a bit older <laughs> and also the Pepper Plays cricket book so we've been totally spoilt here today and I can't wait to chuck it on and send him a photo so thank you Brian I'm sure you'll be listening out there well major moments you also sent me a video today of Winnie playing with an actual cricket ball and saying the word oh yeah for the first time, so... 
Well, this is, uh, yeah, well, it, it being Saturday, and I can't tell you how beautiful it is. I mean, sure, it's the 27th of February. It's probably not very warm out there, but it's one of those glorious sort of London days, not a cloud in the sky, sun beating down, winter sun at that. And I thought I would dress Winnie up in her whites. <laughs> so she's got some white trousers on, as it were. Uh-huh. And the cricket jumper that was made for her when she was born. So it's the first jumper she ever owned, a cricket jumper with her initials embroidered in the in the side there. But it's because she's still a pretty little girl. Like, she's not that big, as you know. She still fits into it. So I thought, uh-huh. why not? And I've got a pink cricket ball from uh, one of our... Uh, I think we got it given to us at the first day-night test match, something like that. So I put that in her hand and she's been picking it up and enjoying it. But yes, so we, we've taught her today to say ball. So she's crawling around after this pink cricket ball saying ball, ball, ball and dancing away and having a great time. So yes, whilst we are isolated for another six days and can't talk to anybody now we're back in London, we are making the best of the situation and enjoying ourselves. Well, you've created a whole new person to talk to because you can now talk to Winnie (laughs) and Winnie can talk to you. So well done. You've increased your conversational possibilities by 50%. Well played. That's a good point. Okay, let's, uh, let's broaden our conversational horizons as well by uh, doing a little thing we do with our patrons each week. Jeff, what's it called? It's called Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge, the game that we play with the people on the patron page. And that's how this show got invented accidentally in the first place. Uh, it's a game where they support the show by sending us a, a number of currency and smaller currency with a decimal point in it and it relates to a cricket number in some way the decimal point may or may not but the overall sequence of digits relates to cricket but we don't know how they don't tell us how we have to figure it out (laughs) that is the very premise of the game Uh, you will understand how it works in practice as we're about to do it the first of our numbers is $4.22, and it's a double header. It's come in from two different correspondents, meaning they might have two completely different reasons for choosing $4.22. They are Richard Jones and David Smith, uh, and those do sound like names that you would give if you were pretending to be someone else while in town to assassinate somebody. Yeah. You're like, hello, I'm Richard Jones, and this is my associate, David Smith. So they may or may not be. Let, let's not let's not investigate that too closely, but 4 Two, two. That's the sequence. Could be a decimal, could be not. And there's a clue from Richard for you, Adam, for his version of 422, which is 422 probably won't be found in official records, but I reckon it should be. Okay. I think I was channeling Dr. Jones uh, with that clue. Yeah. So official records shouldn't be... I've actually written about this before, and it's to do with World Series cricket and how it's kind of mm-hmm. just ignored. There, there are separate categories uh, issued for World Series cricket players, but, uh, of course, they aren't internationals, strictly speaking, But nor are they first-class games, so they don't count towards those records, which do leave them kind of in purgatory because uh, they didn't really tick out yep. the box at the time. I, I, think that, I think they should, by the way, be counted as first-class stats. I think that'd be quite an elegant way to incorporate them for what they were, which was such high-quality cricket played between um, Mm. 1977 and 1979. And in that window... (laughs) Particularly, if I could just interject, when you look at the completely ropey, weird, bullshit games from, like, the 1800s that get given first-class status. You know, retrospectively, 60 years later, someone goes, oh, well, I think so-and-so played in this and and the quality of players was high enough and therefore, you know, Lord Hawkington fothering Smythe's 11, you know, gets given (laughs) first-class status in retrospect just because they were rich enough. Well, Kerry Packer was rich enough. Give him first-class status. 
Yeah, I think that all tallies. I mean, the you're right. I mean, and Jerry Kimber on his excellent podcast, Double Century, looked at this as well. The idea of status and and how mm. uh, Test cricket came to be in the first place. Well, anyway, Dennis Lilly took 67 wickets in World Series Super Tests in that two year period, mm. and if you add the 67 wickets to his original test tally, that gets you to 422. So, yes, his average would have swelled to 24.39, positively profligate uh, from the 23.92 he officially took in test cricket. But what it does do is send him from 24th in the all-time rankings as they currently are for wickets taken to number 12, which is quite significant. I mean, it moves him into the 400 club as well. So I'm sure that's what Richard was pointing towards. And the other point here is that Lily missed his best years to World Series cricket in official records from age 28 to age 30. And I think you'd you'd say that's the best a fast bowler gets in terms of his numbers and those that played against Lilly, I reckon he was never better. Sure, there was the pre-back surgery pace that he had, but mm-hmm. as far as being the complete package, uh, he really was there in the late 70s. And the same applies to Greg Chappell, who played World Series cricket between the ages of 29 and 31, which was such prolific years for him. In 14 super tests, uh, Chappell made 1,400 runs at 56, made six centuries, and had those runs been counted to his test tally, he'd be over over 8,500 all up. So at a notch over 55 or something like that. So, yeah, I thought that was all probably part of where Richard was steering on that. Last point I'd make is that if you add Lily 67 wickets to his first-class tally, Mm. that would give him 949. The last of those 949, or the last that he took in first-class cricket, was in this comeback he made uh, for Tasmania and Northants in 87, 88 and 88, respectively. So four years after he'd given the whole thing away, when he retired, of course, with uh, Rod Marsh and Greg Chappell at, at the SCG in 1984, well, he bobs up again for Tassie in 87-88, with a view to making an Australian comeback, actually. <laughs> and then in 1988, he, he plays county cricket. And there's a brilliant uh, Christian Ryan piece about this from about five years ago in in uh, in the Cricket Monthly, which I can recommend if you want to um, read about Dennis Lidley's last hurrah as a 39-year-old. Yeah, well, everybody needs a last hurrah as a 39-year-old in whatever walk of life you're in. Uh, for David Smith, who... We'll give another number two, you know, another variation on that number, another interpretation. I did enjoy the pairing that um, 422 is the test cap number of both Sean Marsh and Jeff Boycott, um, brothers in arms, <laughs> as it were, um, and, and also that it gives you a sense of how far apart the eras are. I know we enjoy, you know, looking at yeah. the, the numbers in terms of England and Australia caps, where, you know, there's a long, long way between, what, 2011 when SEM debuts mm-hmm. and, and Jesus, when did Boycott debut? 1888? Uh, um, 60, yeah, I think Boycott played his first test in 64. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> a fair old gap to be sharing the yeah. same number. Um, be some great conversation between those two in the back of a cab after a, a decent night out. But where... I suspect there'll be there'll be a lot there'll be a lot of talk from one of them and a lot of mm-hmm. listening from the other. <laughs> I'm not sure if there'd be a lot of listening, but there'd be a lot of um, yeah being in the vicinity of sound anyway. The, where I went with this more specifically though, four two two. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about Andy Flower. Now, you you may remember that Andy Flower was a a very angry man a lot of the time, and there are reasons for that. Because if you were a player who made 142 and 199 not out in the same test match and you lost by nine wickets... You would yeah. be pretty pissed, you know? Like, that would be fair enough. So there's a match in 2001 when South Africa visits Zimbabwe. They run up 
exactly 600 for the loss of three wickets. <laughs> Andy Flower bats next, makes 142. In that innings, he's got Dion Ibrahim making 71. He's got the number 10, Travis Friend, who makes 30. And the rest of his team makes naught, 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 <laughs> 1, 7, 13 and 16. So Andy Flower's last man out for 142. They get forced to follow on. They're more than 300 behind. And in this innings, he's got Hamilton Mazakadza, who makes 85 alongside him. The rest of his team make naught, 3, 4, 6, 6, 7, 16, 17 and 19. Andy Flower is not out this time. High and dry, runs out of partners on 199. Doesn't even get to the double ton and has got a lead <laughs> of 77 that South Africa run down in 15 overs. The reason that this links to 4-2-2 is that in that two-test series, Andy Flower made 422 runs across the two test matches, most of them in Fantastic. that one match. Yeah, he can be an angry bastard, but he, can, he has this really quite soft and tender side to him as mm. well, which we got a chance to tap into uh, during the 1999 Greatest Season That Was podcast we made. When you talk to him about Zimbabwe, and specifically about that generation of Zimbabwean cricket, mm. he's, it's, he's still very raw all these years later. Obviously, broader political circumstances of his departure would add to that. But yeah, yeah a complex character and a brilliant one at that, certainly with bat in hand. So I like that a lot. The last one I was going to chuck into that dinner party with Jeff Boycott and Sean Marsh is Dean Elgar. <laughs> his best bowling in Test cricket is 4 for 22. Uh, that was against India at Mahali in, in 2015. He doesn't do an awful lot uh, with the ball, Elgar, but given it's at the, the final words, favourite ground, Mahali. Uh, I couldn't overlook that. He's sort of the Smith Slayer, isn't he, Dean Elgar? He, um, he's picked him up a couple of times in Test cricket, once at Cape Town in 2015 and then again in Durban uh, in 2018. So two of his 15 Test scalps is Stephen Smith, which is a pretty good strike rate, I reckon. Yeah, that's what's that like? Yeah, two out of... What's it? Is that 15% or something of your test wickets is Steve yeah. Smith? Um, not too bad. So that's 422, Richard and David. If we haven't got your number right, you jump in the patron DMs and you let us know. Give us a nudge, steer us closer towards your number and we'll revisit it on a future show. Maureen McCord is our next new number. Well, she's not a number. Uh, she's a person. She's a person who sent a number. You're more than a number, Maureen. You are a person. You are somebody. $2.50 is the number. Nice round one. And a message from Maureen with it. You don't have to send clues. You know, you just if you want to, you can. Maureen says, my 250 is a nerd pledge number, one which requires a certain knowledge of late colonial era Indian test cricket. As an American getting a PhD in modern South Asian history, this is some of the only cricket knowledge I definitely have. The number also has a very tenuous connection to one of the final word, Pantheon, our father of man, Kads Vinu himself. It's a fun story. All right, Adam, you get first crack at this. 250 off your shoot. Yep, thank you, Maureen. Yes, that felt like very final word areas, didn't it? An American mm. getting a PhD in modern South Asian history. Oh, yeah. <laughs> thank you uh, <laughs> uh, for the clue. Right, so this isn't test cricket, so I probably haven't got this right, but I thought it was worth telling the story anyway of a VJ Merchant who made an unbeaten 250 in a Hindus versus rest of the country game in 1943 in mm-hmm. Bombay. So it kind of meets the criteria. Mancad was in that team, so I saw that she said there's a tangential link to Vinu, so yep. that was good enough for me. Of course, Merchant was known as the Bradman of India. He had an extraordinary first-class average of 71.64. He made... 
45 hundreds and 52 half centuries in 150 matches, utterly prolific. And of course, his first class average for those that have played, you know, more than say 20 games or something like that, mm. is the second only to Bradman, who averaged 95 in first class cricket. So uh, he, he didn't actually play against Australia just after the war. He didn't make it out uh, in 1947-48 due to illness, which was really disappointing for Bradman himself, who wanted to play against him in that series. But he only made three Test centuries from 10 Test matches between. 1933 and 1951, but he did go on two England tours and made more than 4,000 first-class runs into trips around the country. So one of the greats in that sort of, well, I guess either side of the Second World War. And the link for me was yeah that unbeaten 250 he made in 1943. Very good. I like it. I went down a, a related tangent, I suppose, um, looking at late colonial era. I found it very difficult to go past the absolute thriller when we're talking about games that have been accorded first-class status, the absolute thriller in 1943 between the Bijapur Famine Eleven versus the Bengal Cyclone Eleven. Now, these were not Big Bash-style nicknames given to the teams. These were presumably fundraising teams for various disasters. Yes. But, like, I'm trying to get my head around the thing where you've got so many disasters that you're like, all right, you're the Famine Eleven, you're the Cyclone Eleven. They're all sort of fun-packed match for all the family, that one, because the Cyclone Eleven made 703. <laughs> Thanks to VJ Hazari making 264. We're going to fucking drive it into the ground. <laughs> we ain't call us the Cyclone 11 for nothing. Let's rip their roofs off. We don't off. play friendlies. We don't play charity games. We play proper fair of fucking cricket, you snowflakes. Just Se- like AB. 703. Then the Famine 11 were like, this is fun, let's keep this going, as they made 673 in reply. <laughs> People were on the edge of their seats for days. Uh, Casey Ibrahim made an even 250, which is my link to Maureen's number. And somehow both teams managed to squeeze in a brief second innings thanks to a declaration and then some pointless batting. Uh, You'll be surprised to learn it ended up in a draw at the Braybourne Stadium in Mumbai. But you could not have asked for a better few days of entertainment, I'll tell you what, than the Famine 11 and the Cyclone 11 going head-to-head. So, yes. that's probably not what it is, but it's it, it's a story that had to be told. I'm glad I know it. I'm glad I know it. Do you know what it actually was in the end? Did we get to the finish line here or are we going to throw this back? Maybe. My more likely bid is that we're looking at a test match in 1956, which doesn't quite mm-hmm. fall in late colonial because independence is in 47, but 56 yeah. is Australia's first tour to India. Um, and there's that match in Mumbai where Ray Lindwell is captaining because Ian Johnson yep. is indisposed and it's the only time a fast bowler has ever captained Australia. Until soon. <laughs> uh, so Ray Lindwell captains and, and our man Polly Umrigar, who we've talked about a fair bit on the show, uh, uh, the great early Indian captain, um, is playing in that match as well, captaining that match. So... India make about 250, Australia declare it over 500 uh, miles in front and then Polly Umrigar bats for six hours to make 78 and draw the test match at a score of five for 250 exactly and it's a a great fighting performance and that might be something that inspired pride in, in the Indian team at the time. Yeah, and I suppose the tangential link to Mankad would be that I'd be surprised if he wasn't in the team. He, he would have been playing uh, for India on that 
on that tour where India were there, I'm sure. He was certainly still an international player at that stage. So mm-hmm. thank you to Maureen. That was brilliant. A lot of fun there. Anything to add, please send us a DM. Next up, Jeff, we've got a, a double GBP. So both mm-hmm. in pounds, 454. Jack Firth and Ian Bounds. Now, Jack didn't give us a clue, which meant I could have a bit of a frolic. And I you, did. You do uh, enjoy so, a frolic. Uh, Tony... Off I through do. the meadows uh, you go among the spring flowers, kicking your knees up like a, a newborn lamb. It's a bloke who I know a little bit about from the Calling the Shots documentary last year, but not really in a cricket context. I mean, I knew he played for England, but I didn't know much about his career, and that's Tony Lewis. Um, mm. So, Welshman, Glamorgan batsman from Swansea. He played nine test matches between 1972 and 1973, but the real point of interest here is that he's the last man to captain England on debut, sort of as you do. Mm. He led them on their four-month tour of India, Pakistan and Sri Lanka, before Sri Lanka played test cricket, of course, but there were eight test matches, uh, five against India and three against Pakistan in that winter of 72-73. In the first test at Delhi, I mean, England hadn't beaten India in India in any test match since 1951, so it was a bit of a hoodoo when they went over there. It been a long time. But at Delhi in the first test on Christmas Day in the second innings, he made a gutsy unbeaten 70, which set up a victory over there. So uh, he saluted at the first time of asking. He made a maiden century at Kanpur uh, later in the series. They still lost the series 2-1 with a couple of draws, and then they had three draws in Pakistan after that, no results there. He got one more test at home the following summer, but that was it. So um, a combination of, of injury and getting these opportunities in journalism and broadcasting saw yeah. him sort of pull the pin and, and didn't go on the winter tour of 1973-74, which he was invited on, but said he'd stick with his journalism. And it kind of worked out okay for him because he became a, an illustrious broadcaster. And then you press fast forward to the 1990s and it was Tony Lewis who was hosting the BBC TV coverage. Of course, we, we know a variety of the commentators who are involved in that, but Lewis was the guy in front of the camera steering the ship. And when he finished up doing that, he um, served as the president of the MCC at Lords. So a full career in cricket uh, spanning various different parts of the game. And, and for the purposes of, I suppose, nerd pledge, uh, the best link is that, yes, he's the last man to debut and captain in the same test match. Very good. Cap number 454. That might link for Jack. Now, for Ian, it's probably not, given Ian has put the pledge through in pounds, going to be the one-day international batting average of David Warner. But I did just want to mention that because I I think that we do lose sight or never have sight at uh, uh, most of the time about just how good David Warner is at one-day cricket. Yeah. 18 one-day centuries means that he's second only to Ponting for Australia. His average, if, if you do a qualification of a 1,000 runs, his average is the third best ever for Australia behind Bevan and Michael Hussey. His strike rate for Australia is the fourth best behind Glenn Maxwell, James Faulkner and Adam Gilchrist. And overall, he's 12th for runs from miles fewer matches than anybody who's ahead of him on that list. It's a pretty extraordinary body of work to mm. to average that high and have a strike rate that high. So it scores more runs faster and in bigger quantities than basically just about anybody else who's, who's played for Australia. So it's a, which it's which made it all the more incongruous when... Yeah, I mean, he, he made 43 centuries in the decade between 2010 and 2020 and didn't get into the ICC top six players of the decade or whatever it was. Now, <laughs> I, I'm assuming they made an editorial decision to leave Warner out of that. But, I mean, yeah, it isn't just test cricket. It, it's yeah, one-day cricket as well. And then what he's done in shorter form, more domestic stuff in the shorter form, it must be said, with the IPL the work that he's done with Sunrisers Hyderabad. But, yeah, I mean, I think when Warner's career is over, there's going to be a lot of different 
parts to it where he was truly excellent. And yeah, mm. I think you're right. We do overlook one day internationals because in Australia so much focus is on the test team yeah it's just sort of the stuff that happens in the background but something that might be more relevant assuming that Ian's more of a fan of English cricket is 454 links to the fifth bodyline test match at the SCG in February of 1933 so you know after a, a fairly torrid series Australia would have been feeling pretty good about themselves they've made their highest score of the series in the first innings 435 they topped 400 for the first time uh, in the series England started batting on day two they lost a couple of wickets Harold Larwood got sent out at number four as the night watchman you know good opportunity to give him a bit back he's five not out at stumps and then he, having taken four for 98 in the first innings, he goes on to take back every single one of those 98 runs the next day with the bat. Scores 98 himself and then gets out. And he's really going after the off-spinner, Philip Lee, who's got the strange nickname of Perka, Perka Lee. So in one over, Larwood scores two, a four, a six, another two, and then holes out trying to get to his hundred. So he wasn't hanging around. <laughs> They're four for 310 at that stage with one of those wickets being the night watchman. And they've got Eddie Painter, who averaged 59 in test cricket, batting at number eight. <laughs> you know, no dramas. Uh, so England go on to make 454, get a lead and win that test match. And 454 is the number. So Ian, that's my guess. Uh, let us know if we're anywhere near it. Thank you, Jack, and thank you, Ian, for 4.54. Next up, Jeff, 1.47 from Jeff Price, also in pounds. Mm -hmm. And the clue is a signal was a notched sword between two roses. Mm, uh, yes, the old notched sword between two roses. I feel like a Jeff Price is something that I should quote people, you know, when... <laughs> when they ask me to do things. <laughs> My Jeff Price is £1.47. OK, uh, a signal is a notched sword between two roses. Well, a particular type of scimitar, Adam, with a notched blade, a notch in the back of the blade, which I suppose is maybe to let the blood run out or something. I'm not quite sure how swords work. I'm sure there are some some uh, red pill shows on, um, on cable TV channels who tell me all about swords. But... A scimitar with a notched blade is known as a siax. And we ah. have mentioned on this show before, in fact, we've asked on this show before, what the fuck is a siax? And now I know what a siax is um, by researching swords. A siax is that kind of sword, but it's also the nickname. You can get it with the... Uh yeah, you can get it in with the sea bus, the sea axe and the sea bus, yeah. you carry one together. Well, you don't bring a sea axe onto the sea bus, you know, the sea bus is a place <laughs> of peace and calm. Somebody who's not a firefighter is bringing a sea axe onto the sea bus, we're in trouble, you know, here's Johnny. So, there are two options as to how a sea axe could relate to cricket. One is that it's the nickname of the Middlesex County team, and the other is that it's on the emblem of the Essex County team. It, I think it's on the emblem of Essex County as a whole. So a lot of people have notched swords on their shirts, right? Okay, this is now where we're starting to move towards what's going on. Sea axes and 147. Well, annoyingly, there are two options here because... Alistair Cook, who was a famous Essex player, you may recall, scored 147 as his farewell century to test cricket. Also, Andrew Strauss, who was a Middlesex player, a Seax, scored 147. They're two of the only three Englishmen to score 147 in a test match. The other one's Dennis Compton, <laughs> who has nothing to do with it. Alex Hales and Sarah Taylor made 147 in one-day cricket, but that's not going to be related. So we've got 
Essex, Alistair Cook's 147, and we've got Middlesex, Andrew Strauss's 147, either of which could be a SEAX-related thing. The bit that I'm not quite getting is where the between two roses comes in. Now, the two roses are either going to be Yorkshire players or Lancashire players because they're the two teams whose emblems are roses. So, Alistair Cook had a Yorkshire player in Joe Root succeed him as captain but he did not have a Yorkshire player directly before him as captain. He had won a couple of captains before him in Michael Vaughan, but there were intervening captains in Peterson and Strauss. And then Strauss didn't have a Yorkshire captain coming after him either, so it doesn't quite work in that sort of context. If we're talking about opening batsmen who came before and afterwards, you've got Adam Lyth or Haseeb Hamid who are from the right sort of part of the country in terms of being Roses yeah. players, but were they were they directly well, before there was a, or directly after? Yeah, uh, well, Seax immediately followed a Seax as far as, uh, mm. if you want to go with this. <laughs> yep. Strauss retires and, and he's replaced by Nick Compton, who actually was playing for Somerset at the time, so that won't work. He moved to mm. Middlesex later so yeah. yeah i'm not quite there on this i mean 147 I mean, it could be the 147th english test cricketer which i don't have immediately to hand but that might be um, no I'm, a player I'm, who sits between i'm confident that this is where it's going to be it's going to be one of these two players in the 147 they made and it's going to involve yorkshire or lancashire players around okay. them and so i think i'm most of the way there and i think jeff price i would like you to me out of my misery in the DMs and we will let people know what the final link in the chain is next week. And also, in addition to Jeff sending Jeff a DM, uh, you can get in touch with us as well and, and let us know if you've worked it out based on the clue you've heard Jeff yeah. go through. Next up, 277, another double header, another one in pounds. Billy Friendo and Rory Seymour. Now, Billy first up, which I'll take, Jeff. We did get a clue uh, from him. He says that the family who lived in the house behind him in Western Sydney in the late 1970s contained a test cricketer whose son was my buddy in kindy. The family moved soon after the Newcastle but one of my earliest memories was seeing his batting gloves out the back porch and trying them on. I couldn't have been older than five, and I reckon it was 1979. And that's about all I needed to work out very quickly that the 277th Test cricketer for Australia was none other than Lenny Pascoe. So that makes sense because Lenny Pascoe, of course, uh, went to Punchbowl High with Jeff Thompson, who he played grade cricket with at Bankstown, then state cricket at New South Wales, and eventually they played in, in the Test team together. In the case of Pascoe, who of course was born Leonard Stephen Datanovich, uh, born to uh, a Macedonian father, Yugoslavian immigrants that, that came uh, to Australia. But yeah, by 1977, he gets his chance in, in the Test team, which is roughly the era that Billy. He's talking about. Um, he's an earlier and big recruit to, to World Series cricket, and he's you know for the most part bowling with Dennis Lilly in World Series cricket at the start. Then Jeff Thompson comes along, and they're reunited in the Australian team after reunification in, in 1979. He took 60 wickets in World Series cricket, 30 in the Super Test, and 30 in the White Ball games. And then once they go back to playing for Australia proper again, uh, he picks up five for 59 in the Centenary Test at Lords in 1980, which is a fine moment. That's actually the Grand Marie debut as well in 1977, that Ashes tour. Not long after that, sort of knee injuries caught up with him and he stopped playing uh, after 1982. But he did play 14 test matches and he was the 277th Australian to play test cricket. And I'm tipping it's his gloves who Billy Friend Day was, uh, was wearing in 1979. Lovely. Um, and I, I always enjoy 
the name Billy Friendo when it comes up and comes up in the list. It just it feels friendly, like hey Friendo. I don't know anyone who calls anyone Friendo, but they should. Why not? We put an O on everything else. Put an O on that. <laughs> A Rory, Rory Seymour. Look, when I see two seven seven in sequence, doesn't matter where it is. Could be on a number plate. Could be on the fuselage of an aircraft. Could be on the bill of a you know reasonably priced meal that was $27.70. I think one thing, I think Brian Lara, I think 277 Why would you think anything else? It's notable that in Trinidad, in Taruba, at the Brian Lara Cricket Academy, out the front where they have the big sign that says, Brian Lara Cricket Academy, they've got four numbers next to it, big numerals, and those numbers are 153, 375, 400, and 501 and they've obviously been put there as the most famous Lara innings you know the the 153 from Jamaica winning the test nine wickets down the two world record test scores and the world record first class score but I feel that 277 should be there as well and it should be there first Definitely. because it's it's as iconic as the 153 absolutely it's one of the great maybe the greatest of the masterpieces in terms of the, the conditions the surface they're playing on, the situation, because this is a masterpiece. The West Indies are in trouble in this test match. Brian Lara is playing his fifth test. He's 23 years old. Nobody nobody knows what he can do yet. He's never made a test 100. He's made three fifties and a 44 in his four tests so far, so he's always made some runs, but he hasn't made a big score. And they're 1-0 down in the series. Australia have declared a for 503, everyone's made runs. Boone, both the Wars, Border, Greg Matthews have all made runs. And the West Indies are two for 31 in reply to that. And out comes Lara and adds nearly 300 runs with Richie Richardson. <laughs> then puts on another 124 with Keith Arthurton, another 33 with Carl Hooper. Hits 38 boundaries. I gave myself the pleasure, um, and it's probably not too inappropriate to use that phrase, of YouTubing <laughs> all of that innings before doing the show. <laughs> and it was good. It was it was some of the most pleasurable time I've spent alone with a laptop, just, just watching Lara go at it. Everybody talks about how he goes through the offside, and that was glorious, but the way he goes through the leg side is just as good. The high back lift, the flourish, and you always have those discussions about who was the better player and blah, 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 but if it's down to who you wanted to watch, you wanted to watch Lara, didn't you? Yeah, it really needs to be stressed as well where they were in this series. This is like the week after Shane Warne's taken 7 for 42 and destroyed them at Melbourne uh, when they were galloping away to victory with Phil Simmons making 100. Uh, and then they're kind of broken there, Australia making excess of 500. You can easily imagine a scenario where they go 2-0 down with two to play and that, you know, yeah, sure, it wouldn't that wouldn't have been that, but nevertheless, it would have been almost that. We know what happens at Adelaide the next week and then Perth thereafter. But, you know, that rivalry between Australia and the West Indies in both countries, but, uh, you know, it, it was it was building towards Australia finally beating the Windies at home. And this was the test. So this was the moment, really, when you consider, as you say, it comes in at 2 for 31. It, that's the point where it looks like Australia are about to have this watershed moment under Alan Border's captaincy. And in the end, <coughs> Lara intervenes and then they lose at Adelaide so close. And then Kirtley Ambrose decides everything in, in Perth. But a fantastic series. And as you say, one of the most memorable uh, innings that's been played in Australia and played in Sydney. And I think he, he named his daughter after, after it, didn't he, as well? He, he named his daughter Sydney after that knock. So that gives you a sense of where it stood for him. Yeah, well, his first century, him proving himself. And, and they had those four one-day games in between this test and, and the Adelaide test as well. The uh, So 
you know, two that they won and then going into the final, they won both the finals. So this was the point of like holding off Australia and then getting up the charge yeah, yeah. that took them through. And the bit that I had forgotten a little bit about, I mean, I remembered that it ended with a run out, but you look at the video and Carl Hooper, it's not Carl Hooper's fault. It's a bad call. You know, Lara sets off. But the fact that Carl Hooper sends him back when the bloke's on 277 instead of saying, <laughs> you know what, I'll take the single and I'll get run out myself. Like, come on. <laughs> it was yeah. it was it was a fairly um mm, it's not it's not the call that you would like someone to make in in that situation. So yeah, Lara piles them up. Jimmy Adams makes seventy seven not out. West Indies make six hundred and six and save the game. And uh, if you haven't watched the highlights recently, do yourself a favour. You talked before, Jeff, when you introed that about two seven seven always being seared in your brain as meaning mm. the Lara innings. We had a great bit of social media interaction from our friend and colleague Louis Cameron yesterday when Travis Head finished on 223 Louis immediately sent us a note saying 223 Justin Langer New Year's Test 2000 it's like a number that to him means one thing yep. um, and that's that's one of the one of the lovely parts of what we do here on Storytime giving you the chance to to play off on on the on those memories you have from when you're a kid next new number Pushkar Godbole 2 Dollars forty-two. It is not the Sachin Tendulkar innings at Sydney. Before you go straight to another innings at Sydney, that only means one thing when that <laughs> number comes up. The clue from Pushkar says it relates to the day when Tony Gregg became a legend in Indian households. Yes, and it is linked to Sachin, of course. Uh, two four two. It has to be the Desert Storm. So Sachin makes. 143 from 131 in the chaos of that Sharjah chase in 1998 but as they say it sort of inspired a generation of Indian players Rat Kohli cites it as one of his most formative early memories and it wasn't the final either it's often sort of conflated with the final where Sachin also makes a century a few days later but on the 24th of April, his birthday, his 25th birthday, also Damien Fleming's birthday who's bowling mm. to him in that one day international, got a tweet. He, he plays this Damien Fleming didn't Never get got a, tweet. a tweet about it. Didn't get it. Maybe one day he will. The uh, yeah. So Australia make two hundred and eighty four for seven, and are on the cusp of eliminating India from the tournament. But um, I think it was a tri series with New Zealand, if I recall correctly. But there's this incredible sandstorm, and you watch it back on on YouTube, and you get a feel for just how how out of place the whole thing is. <laughs> That's what we need to set it to. If we they put it kept on playing YouTube that channel. during the T20 the other day um, at Dunedin, the, the New Zealand Australia oh, T20. Right. I heard the DJ drop that four times in 40 <laughs> overs. I shoot you not. It was a once in I want to see that between overs. Yeah. And, and no matter how Australia are going in the game, I want to see Stoinis, Zampa, Maxwell, Agar getting up on the balcony and giving it big, getting their shirts off. Um, Right, so in that game, Australia 284 for seven, but they have a revised target India of 276 in 46 overs, or 237 would be enough to get to the final on run rate. Tendulkar ended up getting out when the score was 242, so the job was done. That's the number which I'm sure uh, that Pushka is referring to and, and ends up on 143. But the reason why he mentions Tony Gregg is the commentary, the TV commentary is just sensational. I mean, we all knew about Tony Gregg Greg in Australia by this stage because of course he'd been commentating for oh, I guess it would have been 20 years by 1998 originally um, playing in World Series cricket and getting a job from Kerry Packer to call on Channel 9 thereafter but for an Indian audience who, who'd known Tony Gregg calling stuff from Australia this was different gravy he, he's calling their their, their their champion on his birthday 
on his birthday uh, and and doing something truly spectacular. And I think what I'll do here is, um, instead of me going into any more depth, uh, here's Harsha Bogle uh, talking about Desert Storm, Tony Gregg and his memory of watching that evening with his wife. I, I remember sitting at home and watching that game and I think India had to make 240 to qualify and 280 to win in the previous game. And in our conservative mind, we're all thinking 240. And I'm sitting there with Anita and I'm saying, okay, 240, how far are India from 240? Can we get there? And then I remember literally freezing at one moment and I just tapped her and I said, he's thinking 280. He's not thinking 240, he's thinking 280. He was the only person, I promise you not, the only person who's thinking of winning that game. And then the drama around the fact that well, was he actually out, was he not out, and, you know, all these things acquired. Of, but, but if you ask people today of all the great Tendulkar innings over the years, they will say the 90 against Pakistan in the 2003 World Cup and they will talk about uh, Desert Storm. You try and tell them the century in Perth as an 18-year-old kid was sumptuous, you'll never see anything like that. <laughs> and then, uh, Desert Storm. So this... Jeff, that's from an interview we did on Final Frontier late last year. So that's the, if you're not familiar with it, the uh, mini-series we've made on the greatest season that was feed, which we might link through to in the show notes, uh, where we looked at the rivalry between Australian and Indian cricket from the mid-'80s, but really 1991-'92, and taking it all the way through to um, the extraordinary series of 2001 in India, which is 20 years ago this month, would you believe? So um, we've got interviews with Adam Gilchrist, Damien Fleming, Michael Kaspervitz, Already mentioned Harsha Bogle, there'll be some people I'm missing, Gavin Robertson. So, uh, yeah, jump on that feed if you're interested in learning more about the Australia-India rivalry. And a big part of that is what happened in 1998 at Sharjah, the Sandstorm. By Darud. Right, next number. It's a double header. It's coming in from Samuel Thurkelson and Jaya Prakash. The number is $2.16. Or in Samuel's case, £2.16. That means 216, and that means it can only, as far as I'm concerned, be one thing on the final word. Anytime 216 <laughs> comes in, it is the test wicket tally of Clarence Grimmett, the greatest leg spinner. The greatest bowler. Nay, let's just let's just go straight out and say it. The greatest bowler in the history of Test cricket. Did things that no one else could do. First to the two hundred mark. Got to two hundred wickets in thirty-six test matches. How rude is that? Absolutely unreasonable. Now, there are other things that people associate two sixteen with. Dean Jones is a good one. I'll accept that as, as number second. Uh, number second, yeah. We're going really well here. Highest test score for Dino. But it's pretty much got to be Clary and I'd mentioned Dunedin, the New Zealand uh, small city mm. of Dunedin, just a moment ago, and, and that's where Clary was born, in the suburb of Caversham. Played first-class cricket for Wellington by the age of 17, and then, bless him, came to Australia. Um, you know, Crowded House, Farlap, Clary, Pavlova, uh, the, the, the spoils. And the flat white. <laughs> the spoils that we have received. <laughs> Yeah, moved to Sydney at 22, then to Melbourne, then to Adelaide and never looked back until he was callously knifed in the back by Donald Bradman. So, look, that's that's all that 216 really needs to mean. What a telly of wickets. Who, to, who took 200 test wickets? Nobody. No one did that. Sid Barnes got, what, 181? That was a lot, yep. but no one's going to take 200, but then they did. If, just by some very slight chance, given that Samuel is seemingly from the UK, this is not about... 
a New Zealand Australian player. I did find an English number, given that we've spent a lot of time in the last few weeks cutting Jimmy Anderson's career into weirder and weirder chunks to see what the statistical analysis is. If <laughs> you take James Anderson's career back to and including the Sydney test match of the 2017-18 Ashes and go from that point on, his bowling average since then has been 21.6. So it's just a little bonus <laughs> for you, Samuel. That's the thing about having a career as long as Anderson's that you can kind of slice and dice mm. the numbers. However you see fit, and we'll, I'm sure continue to do so, we might talk about Jimmy Anderson more on the weekly show next week. A bit of a teaser there. Next up, Jaya Prakash. His 2.16 came with a clue. He says, My nerd pledge relates to a long-lost game that slowly became more even before one of the greatest last five minutes to a game teenage me had ever seen also starred one of the final word faves. And, Jeff, for this, I went back to 2010 and went back to Mahali. Mm. Please. For lots of reasons, a ground we love. But Mahali, in addition to being the venue where Shane Watson was banned in 2013, mm-hmm. was also the place where he made his second test century uh, in 2010, as I say. So Australia made 428 in the first innings. A Watto big century, the big rig, bless him. Tim Payne made his highest test score as well in that innings of 92. Back, I think it was in his fourth test match, something like that. India, in reply, make 405. Sachin makes 98. But... And this is where our story begins. Vivius Lakshman bats at number 10 because he's got Shaggers back. Um, he hurt himself when he was fielding. So he couldn't come in until number 10, had a runner. And we'll come back to him in a sec. Second time around, Australia make 192. Watto keeps the good times rolling, making another half century. India set 216, that number, 216. And this is where the party starts. Mm-hmm. Overnight on evening four, India... Are fucked. They're 55 for four, and we all know what happens when you're four down chasing anything on the final day. Invariably, you lose, unless you are England at Headingley in 2019. That quickly becomes 76 for five early in the fifth day, and that's when Lakshman this time walks out at number seven. Lots and lots of work to do, especially after he loses Sachin. And then Dhoni's run out from a direct hit from Ben Hilfenhaus, the captain run out for two. Uh, Habajan Singh's also out for two, fending to the gully. In walks Ishant Sharma. Teenage sensation at number 10. It's 124 for eight. Remember, the target's 216. They're miles away. Lakshman can't walk. He's got a runner, as I said before. Ishant just puts a shift in, defends everything, sticks around for a couple of hours, faces 92 balls, and makes 31, creeping them closer and closer, while Lakshman at the other end's going at a runner ball, passes 50. He's doing it in boundaries because... Quite rightly, he assumes that he won't get too much support, but he does get it via Ishant Sharma. Anyway, when he eventually falls to Ben Hilfenhaus, Ishant this is, they're 205 for nine, so they're creeping closer and closer. 11 to get, final wicket. I suppose you could say a tie, an Australian win, or an Indian win are all on the cards here at this stage. And in walks Pragyan Oja. Just 22 years old himself, the number 11, the spinner. And Laxman's immediately fuming uh, at the young man when he can't quite manipulate the strike around Mitchell Johnson, which exposes the number 11. And he is absolutely plumb to Mitchell Johnson. Billy Bowden doesn't give it out. Of course, this is the pre-DRS days as far as India are concerned. Billy calls it as an inside edge. It's nowhere near the inside edge of the number 11's bat. They end up getting four overthrows from that delivery as well. So two to win. And then two balls later, a couple of leg buys. They get the win. 
And Lakshman uh, is there unbeaten on 73, his second highest score in the fourth innings of a win, but one of the most memorable innings as far as um, doing it injured, batting at number 10 in the first innings, number seven in the second, so far behind in the test match. And there he was at the end, uh, steering India to a yeah, very famous victory at Mahali in 2010. And surely, uh, given the target was 216, that must be what Jayaprakash is talking about. Beautiful, beautiful. And if I could put one partnership together, Historically, it would be Lara and Laxman batting together. Wouldn't that just wouldn't that just be the dream? Um, that's it. That's the end of our new numbers. It, it, it takes longer and longer to get through them each week because we are <laughs> getting more and more in-depth. And this is our fault. This is a problem that we have, but it's a problem we're not going to change anytime soon. If you would like to play Nerd Pledge, very easy. Go to patreon.com slash the final word. Make a little account. Set your number. You can have full control over the currencies and the frequencies and all that stuff. And you can help keep the show going, which has been a really awesome side effect of this accidental game that we have discovered. Uh, we're going to have a little break and then we're going to have the revisits because we have to get back to some of the numbers we didn't get right. And I would like to... Uh, Flag ahead of time, Adam. One of my favourite revisits is in this segment. It's not till the end. You have to stay to the end. But that's where it is. There is a number that I'm going to enjoy telling you about so much. Hi, my name's Kate Cross, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. Jeff mentioned off the top of the show that we're back in uh, isolation for the next 10 days, and that's the experience for many Britons uh, and many people around the world for that matter at the moment as COVID enters its second year and I suppose from a final word perspective uh, we've spent the majority of that time talking about the importance of supporting the Lord's Taverners uh, through this incredibly difficult stretch. The Lord's Tavs uh, have been doing their important work for seven decades um, supporting some of the most vulnerable members of our community and programs that help those people better integrate into the society at large often coming from very difficult starting points in life people with disability in particular and we know from the data jeff that they're the group of people who are most likely to suffer feelings of loneliness which are so acute uh, who have been so acute through this dreadful 12 months with covid19 yeah it, it's it's pretty basic if you're living with disability or disadvantage then you're more likely to experience isolation and loneliness anyway and then it's a, a perfect storm situation really with the pandemic meaning that the lockdown measures uh, keep being introduced necessarily but that only exacerbates those existing problems and it also makes it harder for organisations like Lord's Tavs to raise the money that they need to, to run the programs that might help counter a bit of that isolation and loneliness that might yeah. help reach out to people and, and bring people into community situations where they will have company, they will have support. So that's what Lord's Taverners are about. That's the, the fundamental part of it. And in terms of what people can do about it, um, a, a little bit goes a long way. Basically, if you're able to chip in something like three pounds a month, then that makes sure that a young person or a child can attend a program for Lord's Tavs throughout the year um, so that that subsidises and, and supports the full inclusion of, of one person with uh, what is a pretty modest donation. Yeah, it gives a sense of scale, doesn't it, that a lot of people doing a little bit makes a massive difference to so many people. And the Tavernous Cricket Programs help tackle these feelings of loneliness and, and isolation by 
giving opportunities to meet new friends, to socially engage and develop a wide range of personal skills. And normally at this time of year, Jeff, there are huge fundraisers for Lord's Taverners. I mean, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people coming out and hopefully being rinsed by them and getting all their money, which is a great thing um, mm. when, when, when holding these huge lunches and all the rest of it. That's just not possible. So it's like a double whammy in that these programs have never been more important and they've never been harder to fund and harder to cobble together the money that keep them going year on year as of course they are a charity one of the leading sports charities in the UK all the way back to 1950 so uh, we are so proud to partner with Lords Taverners on the final word uh, jump on lordstaverners.org to make a contribution as Jeff says three quid a month that's one cup of coffee a month essentially and you can ensure that a child can attend a program throughout the year for more information and donate visit lordstaverners.org Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word Storytime. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, welcome back to the second half of the show where we revisit numbers that we didn't get right in previous Storytime efforts. Now, the first of those is from Thomas Melia with 105. Before we come to his number, he wanted to relay to us that no Warwickshire player has scored a tonne at a test match at Edgbaston. And Jeff, this relates to a topic that we were going through a couple of weeks ago. This relates to a conversation we were having about whether Trent Bridge had the record for the longest period of time without a local player making a Test 100 there. I think it's been 62 years, uh, but it mm-hmm. definitely doesn't because there is a ground where it's never happened, which is Edgbaston. Um, no Warwickshire player has ever done it. <laughs> we also had the slightly tongue-in-cheek suggestion from our listener George Norman about Bramall Lane, where Yorkshire did play Test cricket many, many moons ago. they the first test there was in 1902, but there hasn't been a lot of test cricket played there uh, any time recently. But yes, no Yorkshire player ever made 100 at Bremel Lane either, but Edgebaston's the club leader as, a, as an active, frequently active current ground. Very good. Thank you, Thomas Millier, for solving that for us. Now, let's, let's try and solve your number. 105, we said it was the number of years between the highest first-class scores at Lords, which mm. uh, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And then again on the weekly show this week, actually, we went from 315 to 316. Anyway, as Tom writes to us, he didn't realise that 105 years had passed between William Ward's double against Norfolk to Holmes's triple century against his Middlesex. And his next clue is that the next numbers he didn't get to the player he's looking at were 108 and 115. So we were off the scent, but, Jeff, you're back on it. Mm, well, uh, firstly, I liked that Percy Holmes, who made that triple hundred, has had a lot of mentions recently and will come up again very shortly in this show. But not oh, in this good. clue. Uh, Percy Holmes will be back. Don't, don't worry about that. I, I should have worked out who he was talking about really because initially 105 the initial uh, clue from Thomas was 105 think about not what he got but what he didn't get and I should have guessed that somebody with so many first class scores was likely to be this candidate WG Grace who made every score in first class cricket that you could make up until 105 the first score that he never got was 105 um, and there was a point where in in the sort of later 10 years of his career when he was about 50 I think it was in 1898 he declared a Gloucestershire innings closed near the end of a draw you know they could have just batted on they put the oppo back in for 10 overs or whatever it was but he declared when he was on 93 not out because it was the only score under 100 that he'd never made 
He'd made every other score <laughs> up to 105, but he'd never made 93. Um, and so that meant that his lowest unmade score got bumped up to 105. Um, and subsequently, he didn't make 108 or 115 either, but he did make 106, 107, 109, 110, 111, 112, 13, 14, and so on. Um, and God knows how many numbers after that. He ended up with 124 first-class centuries. Uh, and that is the number for Thomas Melia. You've got to be going pretty well in your career when you can give away 100 like that. I suppose 18, by 1898, he, he was only playing... Well, he was still playing Test cricket till 1899, but, mm. you know, he'd already passed 100 tonnes, and I guess it was all window dressing uh, when you it get was to all that gravy. stage. All cream on the cake. Uh, all gravy. All gravy, that's and a better WG word. WG was yes. fond of gravy. <laughs> uh, right, well, thank you, Tom, for helping us get to the finish line there. Next up, Jeff, this is a, a tougher one. Mm-hmm. 231 from Alan Edgar. We went through a few bits and pieces, including Wally Hammond being the first and only man to make 231 twice. We looked at a few other options as well, but Alan has steered us this way with a cryptic clue. Once the first-class detective work has been done, he says, you might agree that 221 would also be a relevant number, although not a cricket reference. A London tube station used when heading to a test match would also be a hint, as would the cricket number 555... Or was it 554? I hope that's enough to get you there. Well, I mean, just to set this up. So for those that don't live in the UK or have been to many test matches uh, in London, for for that matter, you could go with maybe Baker Street if the surname's Baker. St John's Wood, if you're looking at a John or a Wood. I mean, there's Oval and Vauxhall and they don't quite work. Kennington, uh, Edgware Road. I mean, none of them quite work down the list but I'm thinking maybe St John's Wood or Baker Street and the 221 I was looking at buses because the 221 actually runs at the front of my house but that doesn't go anywhere near a cricket ground (laughs) so um, it's probably not going to be anything to do with that the only other number I had a quick flirt with was 555 uh, the 555th England man to play test cricket was Tim Merton who played two test matches in in 1992 Mm. he was tall and he couldn't bat and that's all that matters, though, because it certainly isn't him. Uh, Jeff, uh, over to you, because this is far more in your swinging zone. Okay. Well, the 231... So the 231 might relate to 221, and a hint might be 555 that could have been 554. Right, 554. Let's start there. That was the first wicket partnership record in first-class cricket from 1888 when it was set for Yorkshire by John Brown and John Tunnicliffe. They scored 554 opening the batting together and that record lasted until 1932 when, guess who, Percy Holmes was batting (laughs) with Herbert Sutcliffe for Yorkshire again. They were playing against Essex, the county that's not the sea axes but have sea axes on their crest. They got to 555 as an opening stand. So, you know, they, it was on the scoreboard. They'd broken the record. They had now had the record for the highest first wicket partnership, jolly good show and all that. And having done so, as sort of was customary at the time, Herbert Sutcliffe played a, a weird, you know, sort of shot, basically gave his wicket away, you know, popped one up in the air or whatever it was, as, as was gentlemanly at the time. You didn't want to be greedy about runs, having got 555. And they walked off. And as they were walking off the field, the scoreboard wound back to 554. 
and the Yorkshire team were saying, hang on, what's going on here? Uh, apparently there was often miscommunication with the scorers and the scoreboard operators because uh, the, the scorers had to sit right underneath the scoreboard and they didn't always get things exactly right. So the scorers were telling the operators, no, you've got the number wrong, it's 554, not 555. And they brought the, the number back. Now, Yorkshire absolutely cracked his shits about this because old mate had just got himself out and so after much wrangling between the scorers and captains and all the rest of it and the umpires they sort of diplomatically agreed that the Yorkshire scorer must have missed a no ball that happened the previous day when the Essex scorer was running late and the Yorkshire scorer was having to fill in both books. And they said, well, in the in the <laughs> kerfuffle of doing both books, he must have missed the no ball that the umpires have recollected. They're like, no, no, I distinctly remember that no ball that I called, which should now be added to the score and thus to the partnership. So the record <laughs> was reinstated. The record of Fantastic. 555 stands in the books to this day on the basis that a, um, a, a bit like... Donald Trump calling the Georgia Secretary of State and saying, I just need you to find me 10,000 votes. Yes. Literally, the quote from the Essex captain was, the umpire wants your permission to find a run. And he said, you can, you're welcome to find them a run. This stuff always sticks with me watching a game of uh, cricket at my club in Dever Hills when I was a kid where the players walked off the field and that was that. And then they added up the books and realised that the batting team actually fell one run short, so they hadn't passed the total. And... I think it immediately started raining and they didn't get a chance to go back out there. And that was that. They didn't win the game because of a, a miscalculation mm. between the scorers at the time, which is always why, I suppose, in community cricket, you don't go one run pl- past the score. You go sort of five or ten runs past it just to be sure. Yeah, yeah, just to be sure. So so that's the 555 that should have been 554. Okay, but how does that relate back to our number of... 231 and what the hell does it have to do with London tube stations and this is you know like I'm not quite there with Alan Alan might need to nudge a little bit further or, or might just need to tell me the bits that I'm missing but here's my maybe sort of proposal the original partnership of 554 between Tunnicliffe and Brown both of them were named John so if you were at a station that was St John's Wood, you would have two Johns because it's not St John Wood, it's <laughs> St John's Wood. Two Johns who set the 554 that may or may not have been passed by the 555. That was made by Sutcliffe and Holmes. After the first day when the apparent no ball was bowled that wasn't remembered until the next day, Herbert Sutcliffe's score at the end of the first day was... 231, which is Alan's number. Uh, Yorkshire were 423 for none. So whether that is what the 231 refers to, I'm not 100% sure. But Alan, I think we're close enough. Put us out of our misery. Apply the coup de grace. Yeah, and despite the fact that Alan is a massive Middlesex fan, he would have a soft spot for Yorkshire because that's where his beloved Leeds United are from. So Mm. I'm going to guess that that is another part of why this must be so. So Thanks, Al. I'm sure he'll send me an email as soon as he's listened to the show to tell me whether you've got it right or whether you've got it wrong. Jeff, another 231 to follow. We've got three 231s to revisit, I'll have Mm. you know. Uh, The second is from Brian Strain. We talked about the Jones-Off, the one-day international 
in 1988 where two Joneses did so well. There's a beautiful bit of Twitter correspondence we had this week where one of our listeners sent through the scorecard they kept off the television that night, which is just a delightful thing. I'll be doing that tonight, Jeff, for the England women's game. England are playing uh, New Zealand tonight and Felix White, Tailenders co-host, uh, is having a score along where everybody's going to, all the Tailenders community are going to score off the television. Now, we're going to do it for the test match today between England and India, but of course that ended two days ago. So, um, that'll <laughs> <laughs> so they've, uh, they're, they're, they're transferring their energy to the, the Women's International starting at 10 o'clock local time. And given we're all in lockdown, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people doing it as well. <laughs> anyway, I digress. There's a nice picture on Twitter if you want to find it. Brian said to us that we were spot on with the 231 being the team's final total in a one-day international. And the match we guessed had a much more exciting finish. However, the 231 is from a former ground where I've been taking a couple of photos and I'll send in a separate email. The other pics are from a bloody beautiful university oval in North Dunedin on my morning walk this morning where the Aussies will play us on the 26th of February in the second T20 International, Jeff. Indeed. And, uh, Brian, thank you for sending the photos, which I found in the email inbox. Uh, and in researching this clue i found a bunch of information that i subsequently used in an article for the guardian so who says that doing this show is not (laughs) useful because it was very useful in this case uh the university oval is the lovely ground that they played the t20 at the ground that they used to play cricket at in dunedin and how many times has dunedin had three references on the same show it deserves it lovely place they used to have the Carisbrook ground, which was mostly a rugby ground with a, a cricket pitch in the middle, sort of Eden Park style. But it hosted 10 test matches and 21 ODIs starting back in 1955. And today there's this weird sort of hangover where the site was sold by the City Council when they built the glass house for the Rugby World Cup. They didn't need Carisbrook anymore. It got sold off and demoed and so there's this massive like steel manufacturing warehouse sitting on the site but it still has the little red brick turnstiles that used to be part of the old ground just sitting there Hmm. sort of floating you know middle of nowhere um fairly pointlessly and looking pretty sad and alone um so you know it's a heritage concession that doesn't really seem to do anybody any good anyway in the world cup of 1992 New Zealand played India there and won. Sachin was there. We mentioned him. You might have heard of him. Uh, SR Tendulkar made 84 and got out to Chris Harris. This is amazing early 90s areas here. Uh, Mark Greatbatch made 73 at a runner ball. That was when the Greatbatch opening the batting sort of pinch hitting thing was working. Took a couple of catches. And as in the Jones off, it was Andrew Jones who was key as well, made 67 not out to guide New Zealand to the win. They chased 231 with three overs to spare, a game that I'm guessing Brian was at, given he's wandering around Dunedin taking photos of cricket grounds in 2021. Uh, I'm going to take a punt that he was there in 1992. Um, mourning the loss of, of Carisbrook when New Zealand won 10 matches and lost nine. Beautiful. Lovely stuff. Thank you, Brian. Well done, Jeff. Uh, our last 2-3-1 that we didn't get right was from Steve Lofthouse. We talked about the Mancad 231, which was in the, you talk about record opening stands. This was part of the record opening partnership of 413, I think I'm right in saying, uh, back in the mid-50s. Uh, Steve um, said, What a pleasant surprise to hear my name crop up on Storytime 35 over the weekend. As someone who strongly supports keeping non-strikers in their place, I was honoured to have my 231 nerd pledge linked to the great video Mancad. Yes. Alas. Neither here nor any of your other 231 suggestions were what I had on my mind. 
I have a few clues in mind, but I'll start by simply saying that my pledge is related to a domestic first. I look forward to hearing what you come up with as I do every week. Well, thank you, Steve. I'll start. I didn't have a a first, strictly speaking, but I thought it was worth mentioning anyway. In 1938, Arthur Fagg was the first man to hit two double centuries in a single game. That was for Kent against Essex at Colchester. Mm-hmm. But the second Poor time... Old Essex. Uh, They've had a lot of runs scored <laughs> against them on this episode. <laughs> yes, they have. Uh, the second time, and I suppose by extension, the first Sri Lankan uh, instance of this uh, was only a couple of years ago. Angelo Pereira made 201 and 231 uh, for nondescripts in 2019. So it's mm. not going to be that, but I thought it was... Worth noting on the way through, Jeff. If nondescripts can get first-class status, surely World Series cricket can get first-class status. Oh, they're a mighty club. Nondescripts is one of the many, many clubs that Sawanji Madniaka played. Mm. And I think uh, that's where Kumar Sangakkara played. Uh, in fact, I'm sure it was. Kumar Sangakkara's first-class club was them too. So, um, yes, if the name of your club is name. literally like miscellanea, <laughs> if the name of yes. your club is like random shit I found in the boot of Ben Horn's car, you know, then <laughs> <laughs> surely World Series cricket gets a gig. That's all I'm saying. Okay, uh, so 231, a domestic first. All right, well, pop quiz hot shot. How many first-class matches have been played by the United States of America, Adam? <laughs> Not enough. <laughs> 231? Four. <laughs> they four. played four first-class matches as the United States of America. They played one in 1883, one in 1884, and then two in 2004. <laughs> so they didn't get a first-class game for about 120 years. What's going on there? Yeah, what's, what's going on? They play loads of them now. Yeah. Well, they, they play, sorry, they play loads of sort of in, 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 the, in the structure. They play mm. a lot of... I'm surprised that's the case. Anyway, continue, please. Yep. Yeah, so the, the national team playing first-class cricket, which may not strictly count as domestic, but it's, you know, it's, it's non-tests, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So in 1883 and 1884, they played a team called the Gentlemen of Philadelphia, which in 1883 was captained by Charles Allerton Newhall, and then in 1884 was captained by his brother, Robert Stuart Newhall. Now, if the gentlemen of Philadelphia can get fucking first-class status for a match, then World Series cricket can get first-class status for a match. Um, And then, yeah, 120-plus years until... The next time it happened, well, 120 exactly, I don't need to do plus, in the Intercontinental Cup of 2004, where they played a oh, match. Oh, we've talked about this before. We, we've talked about this game, haven't we? Probably a bit, yeah, because why wouldn't we? So they played Bermuda, and then we would have talked about the Canada match. The Canada game, Davo. A few things happened. Uh, Haninda Singh Dillon made 69, nice. John Davison, the Adelaide Victorian off-spinner <laughs> via Canada, made 84 opening the batting, then backed it up to take 8 for 61, <laughs> failed with the bat the second time around, having a shit game, only made 3, and then took 9 for 76 in the second innings to win the game. 17 wickets in the match for him. Why 231? That was the target that the USA was set that they did not make when John Davison bowled them out 
in the second innings. And it was a, a domestic first in that it was the first first-class contest between the USA and Canada. <laughs> and the only. Yeah, and so just just as a little final sidetrack, um, who else took 17 wickets in a match? Well, 23 players in all. They include final word favourites, Charlie Parker, uh, the jazz saxophonist, Titch Freeman, Headley Verity and John Wisden, the guy who started the book and played cricket once a month, John Wisden. But since World War II, the only ones have been Davo and Kyle Abbott a couple of years ago in county cricket. Yeah. That's definitely not the answer, but that's my, that's my guess. That's good. I like it. We've learnt a thing or two there. Good on you, Steve Lofthouse. Good on you to everybody who sent through 231. Next up is 664, Jeff Brett Simmons. Uh, we talked about Clement Gibson against Armstrong's Australians. Yes, Brent Simmons was directing us to the Saffron's ground. Uh, enjoyed our research. He said he hadn't realised there were quite so many ways that 664 could be interpreted. The player concerned was born a long time after 1921. The unofficial but extremely high quality international cricket that he'd previously mentioned brought to an end the career of a very tall England captain. It's World Series cricket again, isn't it, Adam? It's always World <laughs> Series cricket. Give them first-class status. A very tall England captain who was born in the same country as the cricketer in question. Mm, uh, there's a tenuous mm. connection to Phil De Freitas, who decided not to go on a lucrative tour just before a famous future president was released from incarceration. This is very cryptic. <laughs> um, <laughs> on this tour, the Nerd Pledge cricketer played for his third rebel team, having already played some official international cricket for a country who had recently declined to play his second official international team. All right. All yours, oh. Adam. Jeff, that is one mighty clue and I reckon I've got there I'm not quite sure how but let's see if this adds up uh, I, I don't quite know how it relates to the number but I reckon I've got the player mm. so in terms of being born in the same country as an, a tall international captain whose career ended with an unofficial series well mm. it has to be someone who was born in the same country as Tony Gregg um, and someone who never played a test match born in the same country as Tony Gregg would be Clive Rice Let's go through the Clive Rice boxes we can check here. He did play for Scotland. That's the yes. second international country that he played for. Um, Clive Rice played in Rebel Tours, so unofficial teams, and World Series cricket, and Scotland, and three one-day internationals for South Africa after readmission. But he was pretty much done by then. He's often written as the best player to never play Test cricket. He was extremely unlucky. He he made his first class debut in 1969, so the year before South Africa go into the international wilderness through the apartheid boycotts. And then by 1991, he's in his sort of mid to late 30s, and he's given a few one-day internationals, but doesn't play in the inaugural Test match. Uh, between times, he's an absolute champion at Transvaal and, and Nottinghamshire, where he captains both sides. He averaged. 41 in first-class cricket with the ball and took his wickets at an average of just 22. Quite extraordinary numbers, really, when you look at it. But the Scotland link there, as it relates to in the clue about declining to play against his second international team, in 1970, Edinburgh hosted the Commonwealth Games in Scotland. And that was about to go up in smoke because of what was going on in London with the cricket, with the MCC scheduled to host an all-white South African team, which, of course, didn't happen. The invitation was rescinded 50 years ago uh, last year, of course. That was written about extensively in the Wisden Almanac. So on account of the fact that that invitation had been rescinded, 
everything was sweet as far as dealing with the countries that otherwise would have boycotted the Commonwealth Games, and mm-hmm. it went down as one of the um, one of the, the great Commonwealth Games, according to those that wrote about it at the time. So, in the end, the MCC invited a World Eleven to play, which included a number of South Africans, but it wasn't the South African team, and they'd already been banned by the IOC and interned by the Commonwealth as far as participating in those events. So. That all relates to South Africa and Scotland, the team that Clive Rice also played for, and the unofficial teams that's ticked by World Series cricket and the Rebel Tours. The Defreitas reference is to the 1990-91, I think it was, the last Rebel Tour. Maybe it was 89-90. Defreitas was invited to go to South Africa on that tour and declined because he he didn't want to go and and, and be involved in that while uh, Mandela was still incarcerated. So I think we've pretty much got there on the player. But I can't tell you for anything how that relates to 664 and god knows i tried i tried to work out why uh, 664 related to clive rice but but i can't quite get there so we might need another brief revisit but i'm pretty sure we've got the right player yeah i i did the same thing i looked at every game that (laughs) that he played for scotland i've been through about 430 scorecards it was it has to relate in some way to the saffron's ground because that was a big part yeah, of the, yeah. the original that's the one thing missing from me yeah in hampshire is it but i've looked at all the games he played on that ground there's nothing happening there the only thing i mean there's nothing there is there is nothing completely spuriously at the saffron's ground he played six innings and was not out four times so six six four Two of the numbers are there. We have no idea. So, Brent, put us out of our misery uh, at this point. At this point, you just got to rip the Band-Aid off. But it's going to be Clive Rice. Why is it 664? Let us know. And if anybody else knows, you can let us know as well. You can all let us know. You can be like those times when someone makes a mistake in a tweet and then 450 people reply to it saying, you made a mistake. And it's like, yeah, yeah, so did you because you didn't read the other replies. You fucking numb nuts uh anyway not that we will think about of you like that anyone if you want to tell us what the answer is because we've asked we've invited it that's where we ended up next up is mike dunn and 229 which we're going to throw to you jeff uh we talked about belinda clark's 229 that she made against denmark back in 1997 mike was grateful for that a great number indeed alas not what i was going for you are on the right track by saying it has been scored outside test cricket and the mention of ben dunk is related my pledge involves a player in that very match another clue is that my pledge is second to 257 or at least was at the time, and that may have changed without me noticing it. Yeah, so we went back and forth about this a little bit because I was wondering if it was Australian List A record scores in that Ben Dunk made 229, Darcy Short made yep. 257, and those are the first and second highest List A scores by Australian players. And Mike replied to say, by an astounding set of coincidences, his 229 and 257 are completely different scores, but they are also first and second in their own category. And (laughs) that we have discussed the 257 before. So where it links is that this is a player who played in the game when Ben Dunk made the 229, and at some other time presumably made another 229 and that occurred in March 2014 at Blundstone Arena Boot Stadium the mighty boot South Australia and Tassie SA made 212 Jackson Bird grabbed six wickets Tassie not exactly struggling at 238 for six but they're not on for a huge lead enter Evan Gulbus batting at number eight 
who proceeds to make 229. <laughs> not a slogs fest, not hitting a lot of sixes. I think he only hit three sixes, mostly fours. Uh, but everyone in the lower order goes with him. So Tim Payne makes 87, Ben Hilfenhouse makes 30, Xavier Doherty makes 45, and each of those partnerships adds about 90 runs <laughs> the poor old South Australians. And then he puts on 60 for the last wicket with Jackson Bird, who makes 25 not out. Gulbis is the last man out having taken Tasmania to a score of 651 <laughs> from where they were earlier at 238 for six. The record that he came second in is the second highest first-class score made by a number eight batsman. And ah. the first in that category is the 257 yes. made by Wazim Akram against Zimbabwe that Adam spoke about at length on a show a few weeks ago, particularly the number of sixes that were struck in that rather different innings. Evan Gulbis and Wazim Akram brought together by history, twinned by fate. That's so nicely done. Again, the 229 and the 25. That's happened a couple of times, isn't it, where we've had quite elaborate answers mm. uh, about a couple of numbers mm. and it had nothing to do with what we thought, but mm-hmm. the numbers were coincidentally the same <laughs> with the clue. So thank you, Mike Dunn, for adding to that list. Uh, next up, Bernard Sayer from South Australia, 342. Because of that connection, we said Tim May's cap mm. number in Test cricket. We also talked about a few Shield games, but Bernard wanted us to take more notice of his initial clue and how it re- and his initial clue, by the way, was that it was a 10-year reference and how it related in time to the summer currently drawing to a close. It's not really a Redbacks pledge, more a Test match matter, and he wants to remind us that the 10 years part mm. is central to the 342. Jeff? Well, what Bernard told us was that it was 10 years ago that he joined up as a SACO member, uh, joining you in that illustrious membership. Adam. So 10 years ago, well, 10 years ago is the 2010 Ashes test, really. Yep. Where England stomp Australia, but there's no 342 link there. The only link is really is that in a, a couple of Ashes tours previously in 2002 at Adelaide, there is a 342 link in that. England are going along really nicely. Michael Vaughan's on 177. They're three for 295. And then Vaughan gets out and they collapse to 342. And they end up losing that test match and and never get back into the series. So there's a 342 that links there. But I suppose that's 11 seasons ago. If this is his 10th season, then it wouldn't have been 2010-11. It would have been 2011-12. And the only right. link I can find there is maybe Bernard's got his number slightly wrong because uh, Sexy Ryan Harris <laughs> took three for 41 while bowling out India to win that game, which is not 3-4-2, it is 3-4-1. Could that have been it? Aside from that, there was nothing in that test match that said 3-4-2. So I've circled around it, I've stalked it, I've sniffed at it, um, but, but I, can't, I can't find the final piece, Bernard. So if you would be so kind as to finish it off for us in the DMs, so to speak, uh, that would be great. <laughs> You can finish us off in the games if you want. You can also, um, you can also send Jeff another clue. Uh, no, no, no more clue. This is we've we've come close enough that I I can't get there without some help. You know, I need. Okay, understood. Um, right. Yes, you can't get there without some. Uh, I don't think of Bernard as someone who gets his numbers wrong. By the way, so I doubt no. that sexy Ryan Harris. No. So it's going to be something entirely. It's just how is it? How is there any. nothing else? How is it only one off? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe it's an India thing. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Bernard, let us know. Next, Scott Lamprecht with two nineteen. Now, um, I've made a fairly sizable blue here <laughs> <laughs> on account of the fact that 
I spent some hours looking at 231. Mm. Now, 219 uh, last week for Scott, we talked about Mark Taylor's mm. 219 and his massive stand with with, uh, with Jeff Marsh in the 1989 Ashes series. They should name something at a cricket ground that, like, just call it the massive stand. <laughs> I'm sitting the massive down. Stand. I'm, yeah, I'm in row, row X, seat 42 in the massive stand. Yeah, it's like a, at, the, at the Subiaco ground, rest in peace, the three-tier stand. Oh, the three-tier um, stand. Scott's, yeah. Scott's <laughs> where all of the people watching the footy have a tattoo of three tiers down their face. <laughs> I plucked this number from a random page in my Wisdom Book of Test Cricket, 1876-77 to 1977-78, and I landed on a notable test in one of the big threes history for two reasons, and it's a team score. So because I completely have 231 mind going on, I was looking at that number rather than 219. And for what it's worth, <laughs> you did um, 1896. Again. You'd already done it three for times what it's worth. and you did it again. <laughs> Uh, there was a, there was an, an important test match in 1896 at Old Trafford where Ranji debuted. Uh, he made 154 in the second innings uh, when England were following on after being all out for 231 uh, the first time around. And uh, Ranji was the second Englishman behind WG Grace, his second mention on the show today, and fourth overall to make a century on debut in just 184 minutes mm. in the end. Australia won the test match and levelled the series. And the next week they were bowled out for 44 at the Oval, which meant they didn't win the Ashes Urn, though. They'd have to wait until 1899 before they took the urn home with them for the first time in official Ashes contest, but it's nothing to do with that because it's 219. So, Jeff, <laughs> why don't you get the real number for us? Uh, can I... I didn't mention this before the show, but can I tell you what else you did? Because So, we, we have a document where we put in, you know, the, the numbers that we need to go and look at so so we know what we're looking at. Bernard mm. Sayers' number, for some reason, you'd previously entered as 439. So I spent at least 30 minutes looking up things related to 439 before I was like, <laughs> hang on, Tim May could not have been cap number 439. <laughs> Bobby Kleine was cap number 439 and then realised that everything else I'd done was completely pointless. So, yeah, that's... Sorry about <laughs> you, that. You've had, a, you've had a good run with the numbers today. It's been a long, long week. Yeah, baby yeah. jet lag's a real thing. Oh, I know. I, 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 I have I, just by receiving your messages, I've had the vicarious fear of like being near it. Um, so two one nine was the number, not two three one. Okay, and it is. A notable test for two reasons. <laughs> well, in November 1975, the first test match of a series against the West Indies at Brisbane, Clive Lloyd's team made 370 in the third innings after not going so well in the first, batted really well in the third, and they set Australia 219 to win the pledge number. Australia cruised it in. They got their two wickets down, and it was the Chapel brothers doing most of the run scoring, big partnership between the bros. Uh, and the significance is that it was Greg Chappell's first test as captain. Uh, so it was his first time captaining his brother, who had previously been captain, which must be a slightly weird dynamic. Um, as far as there being uh, two reasons that this was significant, Greg Chappell made two centuries in the test. So in his first captain, his first captain as test, his first test as captain made twin tons. And he also became the first Australian to do that more than once because it was the second time he'd made twin centuries. So I believe oh, yeah. that's likely to be Scott Lamprecht's 219 is the 75 test against the Windies. Very good. And the first time he made twin tons was when Ian did as well, right? Yeah, in against New Zealand. Christchurch, I think I'm Christchurch right. Christchurch or Wellington? 1974. Yeah, one Wellington, of them. one or the other. 
Good stuff. Well, thanks for getting the correct number right. Thank you, Scott Two Nineteen. Next up, uh, Dane Hansted. Final one for today. Final oh, this number. Is the one we're I've been looking with. forward to. Dane Hansted One Sixteen. Now, we gave some not very good links to Wangaratta because Dane's previous number was to do with Wangaratta. Mm. Dane said to us uh, that it isn't linked to that town, but does relate to a Victorian. He has the healing touch when it comes to seagulls and will probably be a part of Adam's dusty old bastards when you're doing story time in 60 or 70 years (laughs) from now. (laughs) Jeff, have fun. Well, this is why I was so excited when previously for Bernard's number, I thought it was 439 because I was like, hang on, that's the test cap number of Bob Quiney. And I already knew that this number was going to be about Bob Quiney. And then I realised that 439 could not be two different players' cap numbers because they each have their own one. That's a fundamental part of the concept of cap numbers is that you can't share them. <laughs> no keys in the bowl when it comes to cap numbers. You know, Even Michael Slater and Brendan Julian had to go their separate ways uh, when the cap numbers were involved. But this number relates to Bob Quiney or Rob Quiney. Depends what you want to do with it. Because... What it came down to at the end of the day, what does 116 have to do with Bob Quiney? Well, we know famously that he batted three times in test cricket. He played two test matches. He famously made the Quiney nine at Brisbane, the greatest nine ever made, uh, and then made a pair in his next innings at the Adelaide Oval almost 10 years ago. It would almost fit with Bernard's clue. That's why I was thinking it might link there. Yeah, the nine followed by the two ducks. What you may not know is that Rob Quiney bowled in Test cricket more times than he batted in Test cricket. <laughs> he had to bowl in all four innings of his Test career, whereas he only got to bat three times in his Test career. He bowled seven overs in Brisbane in the first innings, and then four in the second. Then he bowled eight overs in Adelaide first up and six in the second innings. He never took a wicket, but he did from his 150 deliveries concede 29 runs, which makes for an economy rate per over of (laughs) 1.16, the number of Dane Hanstead. Now, did you know, you probably didn't, because I didn't, and there's no reason you would, of all of the players who have bowled at least 150 deliveries in test cricket, this is the second lowest economy rate of all time. In all test cricket, for all teams involving all players, Rob Quiney has the second best economy rate of anyone who bowled as much as he did. And you want to know... That is what... That is what Ned Pledge is all about. I mean, had you said to me, how did Rob Quiney go with the ball in Test cricket? I would have said he bowled some pretty tidy overs at Brisbane and some tidy overs at Adelaide. Didn't go for many runs, but 1.16 runs per over. Um, I need to know who he's behind, though. I feel yeah. like he's... This is, this is, the, this is the bit... Yeah, you want to know who had a better economy rate in test cricket than Rob Quiney? It was Charlie Parker. (laughs) The dusty old bastard. The left-arm orthodox. The guy who couldn't get in the team because he kept sledging the Tories. Charlie Parker, the jazz saxophonist communist himself, had the best economy rate of anyone to bowl 150 deliveries or more in test cricket. 
two of the final word favourites together at last, <laughs> courtesy of Dane Hanstead, who's done more work for us on Nerd Pledge than anyone else. It must be said, the amount of yeah. times he's uh, saved our ass as far as working out what numbers are when we have no idea. Mm-hmm. It couldn't be a better way to, to finish the numbers that we're considering today. Thank you so much, Dane Hanstead. And thanks, Bobby Quiney, for just being you. Jeff, let's race through some confirmations because we've been going a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Max Gillespie, 254. Uh, we said Wahab has his spell in the 2015 World Cup at Adelaide Oval when he bowled to Australia and scared the shit out of everybody. And Max, he says that we were correct how fiercely that he bowled in that spell. He honestly thought that if Watson got out, Wahab would have freight trained Australia. I agree. Um, and also he apologises for his inappropriate use of the word crescendo, which Jeff pulled him up on. I may need to brush up on my musical vocabulary. <laughs> I am sorry for being an asshole on my own podcast. Uh, I just would like to treat it as a, a teachable moment. We can all learn that the crescendo is the approach to the high point. It's the walk up the mountain and the climax is the summit. That's uh, something that I'd like everybody to, to think about. Um, yes, Jeremy Nash, the 327, is indeed Derek Pringle's economy rate during the 1992 World Cup. Well done, Adam. Got Get that him. one. Uh, Joel Emmonson says 112 was correct with Enid Bakewell's uh, bettering of the Bannerman stat uh, for the highest percentage of runs in a test innings. And uh, a happy accident, he says, that Bakewell did it on Bannerman's birthday. Uh, and then Reg Wilson, 2019, was indeed Triscothic, comma, Marcus versus South Africa at the Oval in 2003. Early 2000s England with Channel 4 in the UK is how I really got into cricket, and the Triscothic slog sweep stands out from those times, says Reg. Uh, James Philbrook confirmed that 462 was the link between the 499 and the 501. Bob Warmer, the only person who was there when... Hanif Muhammad and Brian Lara did their thing. Uh, Declan Lawler, 342. And we talked about Justin Langer's highest score in first-class cricket for Somerset uh, back in 2006. Declan said in that year as a 12-year-old, he was still giddy off the back of that summer in 2005. I could not believe my luck when JL joined Somerset. Two of my heroes from that series, Triscothic and Langer, batting together. Despite only learning about that match at Guildford recently, it seemed like a good link to make. Well, thank you, Declan. It was indeed. Next is 183 from Ritu Raj. Now, Jeff, you went through all the Indian one-day captains and their highest score, and you found this commonality uh, with 183. Ritu Raj says he was very excited to hear his number come up, and Jeff was absolutely right about it being the highest ODI score of India's last three long-term captains. Tracking the highest ODI score of top Indian players has been a fascination for me since I was a kid. Well, thank you very much for that. He goes on to say that he's our one listener in Austria, or so he believes. I did some digging. We're usually the number one cricket podcast in Austria, so he can't be the only... Um, listener. Indeed, a quick look at the charts shows that we've dropped back to third this week after Mark Nicholas's new podcast and the greatest season it was, which is my other show. So hopefully we have the bad producer productions Quinella back as one too if we can overtake Mark Nicholas this week. Time will tell. <laughs> yeah, that's. I definitely mentioned that at the picnic today. <laughs> Often the top cricket podcast in Austria. Austria. Um, <laughs> yes. Now, Simon Ward, a four dollars poor pounds 90 i think it was uh 490 was tim robinson's run tally in the 85 ashes uh, Simon says, as a defensive opening batsman myself, I was I thought that I was Robinson's chief admirer, but I see that Steve James wrote a feature as part of the Times Ashes Cult Heroes series, and it was nostalgic seeing him re-emerge as an umpire in the 2010s. 1985 was his first 
big cricketing year as a kid and as an impressionable 11-year-old, says Simon, I was taken to the Saturday of the Lord's Test by my dad and spoiled in seeing Border score a century, both of them take five wickets and having my scorecard signed by Dennis Compton, who uh, is the one who made that score along with Andrew Strauss and Elister Cook. One quirk, says Simon, is that Holland's dismissal of Tim Robinson meant that England finished the day with two night watchmen at the crease in John Embury and Paul Allett. I wonder if there are many other examples of this. So if anybody can think of other examples of two night watchmen batting at the same time, we would like to know about them. Well, there should be. There should, how often do you see it? The night watchman gets out and then the next batsman, why don't you send a second night watchman out? It's a constant bugbear of mine. Um, whilst answering questions from previous weeks, we put last week whether there'd ever been another player other than Roger Hardigan who'd made 100 on debut from number eight. And sure enough, Pat Rogers was there to work that out for us. Deepak Shodan made 110 on debut in 1952 for India against Pakistan and for Pakistan in 1997. Azam Mahmood made 128 not out against South Africa and then a half century in the second innings. And third, Jeff, was one that you liked from 2012, uh, Bangladesh's Abul Hassan, who made 113 from 123 balls against the West Indies at number 10. And just absolutely teed off. It was it was an inelegant innings, but it was very effective. <laughs> Always like to throw a question out towards the end of the show. Uh, next, Steve Denner, he confirmed that it was correct to say that James Anderson, at the time of pledge, had taken 295 test wickets since the start of 2013. Steve says, Ah, Jeff, you beautiful, crazy pledge getter. You soared, to quote Alan Partridge, like a mad salmon to take a spectacular catch at short leg, only to find out it was pad first and plumb leg before. Rob O'Neill's cunning brain twister may have pushed you into the zone as you not only got my nerd pledge number, but you sailed past it into the depths of James Anderson's career. So, yes... 295 was James Anderson's economy rate in Australia. My clue about an English cricket conundrum was aimed at whether he plays this year. His absence in 2019 seemed to escalate the talk and perhaps now seeing him bowl well in Sri Lanka and India, it seems mad. As your version of my nerd pledge proves, if anything, he's getting better. I picked his economy rate as in the second half of his career, he's tied batters down on flat tracks and even the best avoid playing him rather than taking him on. I seem to remember that happening on at least one occasion in the last Ashes in Australia, although many memories of mine from that series are vague. Thank you, Steve Denner. So, Jeff, you got it right two different ways. Yeah, I want it two different ways. A little updates on the Bannerman stuff. Jeremy Burke has done us a great service. He's uh, made a chart that's like the Duckworth-Lewis calculations, but it tells you... F- run by run for any team score what an individual player would need to be on to be a post Bannerman or a what's I can't remember what the proper prefix is for that word uh, the one that's opposite to sub more than you know what I mean Bannerman plus he says <laughs> while the destination may never be reached the journey can be exciting uh, how does one chart when a player during the course of an innings is in that rarefied atmosphere by applying the Bannerman quotient as the inning progresses the, the attached table will allow the observer to know if at any point a player is Bannerman plus think of the line on the screen that shows the world record time during a swimming race lovely work <laughs> Jeremy we will use the chart in future when the Bannerman conversation arises.
it's going to save me some time. Each time a player is, is in that rarefied air, I always find myself trying to kind of estimate and work out whether I've got it right. But, Jeremy, I'll have your chart at the ready. The next time Rohit Sharma is having a blinder or something like that. Uh, and one on Bannerman from Mark Dwyer, who's the bloke I took the catch from off Dermot Burton's bowling a couple of weeks ago. So uh, the former Campbell Magpies player, Mark Dwyer. He wanted to bring to our attention the milestone of Simon Hill, who's playing his 300th game of Victorian Premier First Grade Cricket for Campbell Magpies this weekend. So, of course, that's a mighty effort from the 36-year-old, originally from Wangaratta, an area of Victoria we were talking about earlier today and have discussed a number of times on Storytime. So a nice link through there. Anyway, Campbell and Magpies have been cataloguing his best innings for the club. And what they've gone with is very relevant to the Bannerman hunt. Number one, he's 137 not out at number three against Footscray in 2016-17. Alongside him, 5-0-0, there were 17 extras meaning they made a total of 172. So 137 not out from 126 balls out of 172, Jeff. That is 79.65. He has smashed Bannerman. (laughs) And they won the game as well. So when you consider uh, seven ducks in the innings, and they still won by 20 runs after bowling out Footscray for 152. He made 42% of the runs in the entire game. <laughs> so thank you, Mark Dwyer, for bringing that to my attention. Simon Hill, you're a star. I hope you made plenty of runs uh, for Camberwell uh, in your milestone game, your 300th on Saturday. <laughs> and, uh, you know, unbelievably, Mark Dwyer, after that, performance let you get him out by taking the catch down the ground he should should have gone straight over your head let us finish with uh, a piece of correspondence this is from matt bridey who's an old friend of mine actually if you've read my latest book if you read my latest book and there's the chapter about the the terrible share house where we set up white line wireless back in the day matt was uh, uh. one of the many residents at one time who lived there for a while and then was driven away by the fact that it was terrible but you know you, you've, you've you've got to be in a certain mindset to be able to live in a place like that yeah th- this came in from Matt who'd been you know listening to the dailies and I, I really like this email he says this is a bit small town but I just Matt lives in Ballarat so you know I guess it is um, but I just wanted to write to you guys and say thanks for doing the daily podcast one of my favorite things about test cricket is that there's so many ways to consume it when it's on you can watch it live live but you're at the bar or in the dunnies or the car park when a wicket falls the telly the telly in a pub that's got the sound down but you saw it on your way in and strategically sat your partner down for lunch so you could watch it over their shoulder but now they're on to you and you're going to have to make do with a lingering look when you're queuing up at the bar. The live stream, I watched a blissful session on the iPad at the caravan park while the kids slept recently. Highly recommended. The radio, the radio in one ear while you should be in class or at work or looking after your kid or minding someone else's kid. The radio overheard from someone else's car while you're filling up at the petrol station. The newspaper the 30-second highlights on the 6 o'clock news, the 15-second highlights on the 24-hour news that seem to be jammed in between a breakdown in peace talks and some grim climate science piece. Lastly, and my personal favourite, is overhearing two random people talking about it because this is where you realise that even though you're extremely distant from the action, you're not alone. You could be in a line at the newsagent or the loading bay of the hardware store or the toilets at the same pub where right now your partner is eating their lunch alone.
alone, but it doesn't matter because some guy's waxing <laughs> lyrical about the inform batter's cover drive. It's never better than when there's someone batting on debut and everyone can delight in the trivia. Did you know he was from Colac? Did you see his mum flew back from Bolivia when he got the call up? And now there's your caper, which is certainly more refined than the two blokes at the urinal, but lacks none of the enthusiasm. I hope you both keep doing it and that one way or another you find it richly rewarding. That, well, I certainly found reading that richly rewarding. Thank you, Matt. Uh, I'm not sure whether we ever came into each other's company at Davy Street, but it, that certainly captures the spirit of the place and the mighty White Line Wireless. And uh, I'm not sure whether WLW will will be broadcasting again anytime soon, but uh, um, it, it certainly holds a special place uh, in both of our hearts. And uh, and I think that really is the essence of it and that was the crux of why we started doing what we're doing so a really nice place to to leave the show today jeff it's nearly been two hours staring down at my recorder so what used to be 20 minutes at the start of an interview this used to be our weekend show a quick 20 minute chat about a few of the numbers and then we'll get into an interview now we do the going on two hours discussing all of the numbers and it's a lengthy process there's no point denying it but it's a most worthwhile one and jeff i'm glad this week's research <laughs> featured in the guardian and i'm sure a lot of the work that we've a lot of the bits and pieces we found will, will, will weave their way through our pieces and commentary and and all the rest. So thanks to everybody for being part of it. And there's no point us doing this unless you're listening. And we receive probably more correspondence about this show than we do about the weekly show, which is thoroughly gratifying. So thank you to all of our patrons, all of our listeners, all the people who are curious about uh, the history of the game as we are. That's it. This has been Storytime. Thank you to Seabus Super. Thank you to Lord's Taverners. I'm Adam Collins. He's Jeff Lemon. The show is on the Bad Producer podcast label, edited by Dave Collins. We'll be back with another daily show on Wednesday. I think that's going to be dropping. And then we'll, of course, have the India-England daily eps, the short, sharp bursts, uh, finding your way into your feeds and your YouTube channel again, as of, I think, it's next Friday. But until then, breathe in, breathe out. Have a nice week. I had to go about it.